Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Harris. Hey, hey, how we doing, everybody? Words like delight and joy, yeah, on one level, they sound great. But on another level, especially when you're as persnickety about language as I am, these words can come off as twee or saccharine or cliched to the point of meaninglessness. My guest today, however, this guy casts these terms, delight and joy, in a whole new light. He makes them concrete and attractive and actionable. He also makes them radical. He portrays delight and joy as necessary for our very survival and also as acts of resistance. Ross Gay is perhaps best known for having written a book called The Book of Delights, in which he cataloged one item or experience every day that gave him delight. Now he's back with a new book called The Book of More Delights. So we're going to talk about both of those books in this interview, as well as a book that came out between those two books called Inciting Joy. It's a wide-ranging interview. We talk about what got Ross interested in the subjects of delight and joy in the first place, how noting delight can be a tool for counter-programming against our evolutionarily wired negativity bias, why Ross argues that there's an ethical component to delight, the benefits of writing by hand, how both using smartphones and rushing through your daily activities can be delight blockers, the difference between delight and joy, what he means when he refers to the offenses of joy and the connection between grief and joy. A little bit more about Ross before we get started here. He's also written four books of poetry. One of those books, The Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's also a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit free fruit for all food, justice and joy project. And he teaches at Indiana University. Busy dude. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. 
The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Ross Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. It's really great to have you here. I'm excited to do this interview. Let me just start with maybe an embarrassingly obvious question, but why delight? How did you get so interested in this subject? It's a good question. And it keeps on like I, I sometimes I think I know and then sometimes I think I don't. For now, this is kind of what I think may have happened. I have a book, my third book of poems is called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. There's a lot of odes to the garden, to these community orchard projects, to all kinds of stuff. I mean, but it's a it's a rich and sort of deep, complicated, sorrowful and sort of whatever you call it, rambunctious kind of book. But it's a book that I wrote just as a book of poems. And after it came out, people started talking to me about joy. They sort of started describing the book as like a book of joy or a joyful book or something like that. I wasn't actually prepared for that in a way. And it made me think, I think it made me think um, more about what that question is. Like what, what constitutes a poem, a joyful poem, or what constitutes a delightful poem or something. Anyway, because this was in my head, not on account of me, but on account of other people kind of reading my work, I think that kind of contributed to this thing. Like I was just taking a walk and having a delightful day. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I should write a little essay about this moment of delight. And then very quickly, it was sort of given to me by the wind or something to do it every day for a year, write a short essay about something that delights you. And I knew that that would be useful, one, because I knew people might be interested in this. And then I had a hunch it would be interesting to me that there might be something to be learned. There would definitely be something to be learned by doing a little a little writing about something that delights me every day for a year. So you're chugging along as a 
a, a poet in the world and you're putting out books uh, of poetry and your third one comes out and people come up to you and say, my interpretation is that this is about joy and, and delight. And that was not your intention, but you took in the feedback and noticed that you had a better radar for delight as a consequence and started turning that into a project. And that resulted in the book of delight. And now it's follow up. Is that a rough summary? That's reasonably yeah, that's accurate? a rough, a rough, reasonably accurate approximation of something that for now I'll say is how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there must've been something. Uh, th- so that's like the factual or semi-factual yeah. account, but there must've been something in you that was, Clearly, there was something in you that was very receptive to this idea of delight, because if somebody had said that to me, I might not have uh, turned it into a couple of books. Yeah, I think there was something for sure. I was I was cognizant of some kind of need or desire to actually practicing and attending to what I now know is like attending to what I love, as opposed to attending to what is terrifying or anxiety provoking or whatever, et cetera. I did know something without knowing it. I did know that like, oh yeah, if I commit a certain amount of time or attention to this daily as a practice, something will happen. Something will shift or move around. I think there was probably the prospect that it would just be the case that I get better at writing essays because I'd written 300 and some essays over the course of the year, which I think did happen. But I figured there was also a kind of a more important thing going on that would happen too. And it did, you know, kind of like my eyes got turned on to things that I love that I often throughout my life probably wasn't noticing or wasn't noticing as things that I love. Right, 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 right. So we all have this evolutionarily wired negativity bias, which made sense from the viewpoint of natural selection. You know, you want to be on the lookout for threats that helps get the DNA into the next generation. But it sounds like you, after having written this book of poetry, got this idea for a new book where you're going to notice something delightful every day and write an essay every day for a year. You're kind of counter-programming. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Because absolutely, I feel like this sort of contagion of moods is a real thing. And our own moods and other people's moods. And the evidence for that, to me, I mean, for one, like one thing is that I'm not just delighted inside of the little cave of my brain. I'm delighted because I'm observing things outside of the little cave of my brain. And often those things are like these instances of sweetness, like people taking care of someone on the airplane or something sweet happening on the corner of a street or like some interaction with a chipmunk or something, I don't know. So that's one thing is that it's often the witnessing of a kind of sweetness outside of myself. But the other thing that I think that points to this thing that I'm wondering about, the sort of contagion of moods, is that um, people are so inclined after they hear about like this little delight thing, <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, I did that. After I read your book, I did that for a little bit. I don't do it every day, but you know, I try to do it once a week or I talk to my kid and I ask him what's delighting them or, or whatever, some version of that. And it it is my experience that when people are like, yo, this is what I love, that I'm inclined to be like, oh yeah, Yeah, what do I love? (laughs) Is this why you say there's an ethical component to delight? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like that sort of, or I wonder, I should say, (laughs) that that sort of bias, that kind of lookout bias, um, heads up bias, must also be some kind of inclination to notice what is nourishing and caring 
and also not just to notice it, but I think, I wonder, I mean, I wonder if there's also some inclination to actually share it. You could argue that there's an ethical component to getting your shit together in any way, that we are all vectors and we got to choose what, <laughs> are we going to be a vector for anxiety, fear, hatred, or, and, and sometimes we're going to feel all those things and pass it along to sure. other people, but are we going to try to turn the dial toward something a little bit more helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so you did the first book and now you're back with another one. Is it just that you, you just can't quit this practice? What, what What's going on? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things that happened. One is that my buddy, when I finished it, and I write about this in the introduction, my buddy who I was with at like a writing residency, he asked if I was going to keep on doing it. This delight project. That was August 1st of 2017. I think Yeah, we were in Texas together. He asked me if I was going to keep doing it. And I was like, eh, I'm sure it'll roll into other things that I'm working on, but I don't know that I'm going to keep doing it explicitly. But it did make me think at that moment, oh, maybe I should do it every three years or every five years or every whatever number of years. Not only because I thought it would be interesting and fun to keep doing it, like writing short essays about what delights me. I'm also kind of interested in like projects that people make that go on and on and on and on. I was sort of thinking about, you know, I grew up painting and I love painting and there's a painter named Robert Motherwell and he has a series of paintings called Elegy to the Spanish Republic. And it's these paintings that he made, he must have made them over 30 or 40 years, maybe. But all of these sort of series, there's a lot of writers who will write sort of poems that just go on forever. And I'm interested in that as a project, so as, as a literary project. I was also curious to know, like, oh, yeah, what in five years will I be finding delightful? And the thing that is interesting is that it's also a book about aging because it's it's the same parameters. Like, I write them daily. I write them by hand. I write them quickly. But now one of the things is that I'm noticing things that I've noticed before and I'm five years older (laughs) and everyone's five years older. My mother's five years older. Like my father died five more years ago, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's the difference five years later? Like, are you noticing how delightful it is to remember to bring a sweatshirt places because you get cold easier? Um, uh, <laughs> changing your glasses prescription because you realize you can't see shit anymore? What's what's changed? Well, you know, I have one. It's funny you say that. I have one in there that's like about playing basketball, pick up basketball with these young guys. They're probably like 20 or something. And uh, me and my buddy are playing. And this thing happens where they're used to what happened. There would have been a tussle. Something would have happened. But me, at my like more grown-up age, I think I was probably 48 when I was writing it, was like, I, I don't need to do that. So that's an example. Like these sorts of things where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when that would have caused something else, you know? Yeah, that's an example. That's an example. I want to talk about some specific examples uh, in a second. But, but just going back to your rules, I believe the four rules were something every day, the entries would be drafted quickly, and written by hand, and you would begin and end on your birthday, which is August 1st. Why, That's right. why by hand? Because, uh, you know, sorry, just to jump yeah. in to say why I'm asking that, Jennifer Egan, yeah. the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, was on this show recently, and she talked a lot about how important it is to write by hand for her. That's what's motivating this question. Yeah, I feel like there are two things. I think first was by hand was a way for me to make it easy You know, a lot of people would give themselves a daily practice of writing and they wouldn't have a hard time with that. And a lot of people could have a, plenty of people I know could have a daily practice of writing for four hours a day or 2,000 words a day. They could do that. 
But I, I kind of know myself enough to know that I'm not really that writer. So one, I kind of wanted to make it simple, which is partly why I made the 30 seconds thing. But I think that's also why I did it by hand. So that wherever I was, like if I was on the train or if I was just sitting out at, at a park or something or at the coffee shop, I could very easily, I didn't have to have gear to do the work. But the other thing that is very important to the thinking that happens in these essays is that when I write by hand, there's a different kind of syntax that I use, a different kind of logic, a different kind of grammar, I think, than when I'm writing on the computer. And part of that, I feel fairly certain, has to do with the fact that I'm not deleting a lot of my thinking. So I can kind of see the detritus, which is, to me, very interesting and often fruitful, the stuff that remains. And one of the things that this is kind of interesting to me is that when I was learning how to revise these essays five years ago when I first did this project, the first 10 I wrote or the first 20 I wrote, whatever, and I started revising them the way I know how to revise. And I was like really cleaning up the syntax and cleaning up the sentences and all of this stuff. And I was making them what I consider kind of terrible. They're getting very boring. (laughs) And I realized, oh, no, you got to figure out how to honor this kind of weird rangy, digressive, physical syntax. So it took a little while, but I think I got it. To my ear, that really rhymes with what Jennifer Egan was saying, that as soon as you step to a computer, you're in a kind of analytical, perfectionistic mode of fixing the thing instead of just letting it flow out of you. I'm realizing I do quite a bit of writing, Mm -hmm. not at the level of you or Jennifer Egan, but I do a lot of writing. And as I heard her talk about this, I was like, oh, yeah, I should be doing more by hand because I'm up my own ass a lot while I'm at the computer. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that. I love that, that it is. It inclines us, that analytical thing inclines us to try to fix everything as it's happening in real time. And fixing, you know, that word fixing to mean both kind of correct, but also to mean like stick it in place, put a pin Mm. in it. To me, it might impede the possibilities of really kind of wild, beautiful, unexpected thought. Would you be okay with me throwing out a few of the things that delighted you in in your newest book, The Book of More Delights? Could I throw some out and get you to hold forth on them? I'm I'm not expecting you to regurgitate what you wrote, uh, but just to tell us a little bit about them. Is that, are you cool? You down with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. sure. Um, Paper Menus. Oh, man. I <laughs> I love paper menus in part because I love the physical world. So the essay is about noticing in a, I'm in a restaurant and a kid comes up and asks if I'm going to want a paper, me and my buddy, if we want a paper menu, if we're going to scan it and look at it. My phone doesn't do that. Um, and and uh, I, I refuse to do, <laughs> to do that. But partly the pleasure, the delight is in just being like, nope, I'm not doing that. Which in the essay, I said, that's actually a joy to refuse that kind of shit to me is joy. But I also feel like the delight in a paper menu, just like the delight in cash, just like the delight in anything that allows us and encourages us to like actually touch things that touch each other. You know, a menu is something that you point to and you tell your friend to look at and sort of think about what they're going to get. And then the server is going to do the same thing. Maybe you might ask them what they think is good. And it's a sort of physical object that we get to sort of gather around or circulate around. When you say your phone doesn't do that, do you mean that you carry a flip phone that has no camera? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very dumb phone. It's a very dumb phone. (laughs) What's that all about? I love asking people for directions. I love not knowing sometimes where I'm going. I love the, the object, the physical object. And that's sort of 
what's what that's about. I also know that I feel bad. Like I used to have one of those phones and it doesn't make me feel good. So I actually just like stopped and started to realize like, oh, these are all the things that a dumb phone permits you to be, which is like sometimes like really sweetly helpless. You got to ask for help. So a smartphone is a kind of delight blocker. I would say, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I would say it definitely, you know, it is one of these things. We have so many of them and we're talking into one of some of them right now, but there are so many of these things that make us imagine that we can do shit by ourselves and that we don't need one another. And so much of this delight thing, the more, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, so much of delight is just like the sweet evidence of our connection and phones that they do a lot of, uh, we talk a lot about, or the the discourse, the advertising discourse is a lot about their connectingness. This really, it seems to me, about versions of disconnection. I want to put a pin in that. Yeah. This kind of, this is my phrase, not yours, but this suspicion of individualism, mm-hmm. which I see coursing through your work. I, I want to get to that, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold on it for a second, if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back to the list of delights. Yeah, yeah. Um, the clothes line. Oh, yeah. I just one day noticed as I was hanging up my clothes and sort of actually being aesthetic about it, like sort of putting certain colors next to other colors and even like thinking about the way the socks look next to the T-shirt, et cetera. I realized, oh, this is just one example of a million things that we do that we don't think about them as aesthetic experiences or productions or something, but that we do with a kind of aesthetic flourish, sweeping the floor folding the laundry, whatever, you know, I think it's, it's just made me sort of glad to notice how often, oh yeah, I'm actually thinking about how I can do this beautifully. So you can fuse any of the mundane activities, how you stack your t-shirts in that drawer or shelf, how you arrange the toiletries next to the sink with some sort of ethic of aesthetics that can elevate it beyond the just quotidian. I guess so. Yeah. And how sweet that we all have our own little things that we want to make beautiful. And obviously they aren't all the same things, but pretty much everyone, it seems to me, is like, oh yeah, I'm going to tie my shoes in the prettiest way ever. (laughs) (laughs) And someone else is going to do their dishes in the prettiest way. Do you not own a dryer? No, we have a dryer. We have a dryer. You know, in in the summer, for sure. I like to hang my clothes up. Braces on adults. I just noticed these college students, so young, young adults, and one of them had braces, and I and I realized how much it makes my heart melt to see adults with braces. And it made me think how, again, those sort of attempts, to, I guess it, it's another thing, these sort of like desires to sort of beautify. It feels so sweet. It really melts my heart. I have a buddy who's also like got some braces, and he's like my age. And it's so tender. It's, I don't, I can't even quite articulate it, but it's so... Tender. Often it's with men, when men who are sort of like trying to just, it's not self-care. It's something like youthful and soft. Something, oh, maybe it's this. Maybe it's like the expression of need. Like one of those things that might articulate or might like indicate need. So like when you see like a, (laughs) you know, like someone my age in a very subtle way with, you know, like for instance, in in that essay, it's the braces. It's like, oh yeah, that's, they need help. (laughs) They need something like like we do. We need something. And, you know, for me, you know, I think a lot about men and boys. And I think partly the the expression of that need among people for whom that expression is so often sort of like 
forbidden is a little extra softening to me. Yeah, I'm around your age. I think we're both around 50. And I don't want to speak for younger men, but I think men of our generation and older, we weren't encouraged to express need or vulnerability at all. And so the braces, it's just like, yeah, it's an implicit admission that that softens you and them. Yeah, exactly. Early exclamation point. That's the header early exclamation point of one of the, <laughs> your delights. I'm just going to read this one. I want to read something because in particular, I just liked this. First of all, I'm pathologically punctual myself. So I, Are I, you? I, yes, yes, I related to that. Although I was late for something today, which just made me so stressed. Anyway, you're early for a coffee or lunch with somebody and you're, you're loving it. And the person's late, which you actually also love, although that drives me batshit. But anyway, you're... <laughs> you're <laughs> You're, what you write here is, uh, it might also be that earliness, maybe especially earliness on account of someone or something else's lateness, can feel like the universe just dropped a bouquet of time and often a luminous bouquet of time in your lap. I love that. And I wonder if you'd just maybe say a little bit more about it. Yeah, it's just, I'm not an early person. And, um, and so... <laughs> oh, we, we, got, we have problems. So, I know, I know. So... <laughs> So, and, and, you know, so often I have beloveds in my life who are very punctual, but periodically something goes wrong. Like they caught a traffic jam and they just feel like they feel terrible. Like, like, <laughs> but to me, especially when I'm on time, cause they're really punctual, man, it feels like, yeah, like I said, like the universe just dropped some time in my lap. And I think partly that has to do with, you know, just probably being busy. It's sort of a note, you know, an awareness. I think I mentioned that in the essay that I kind of noticed sometimes feeling busy, you know, when, when something gets canceled, man, that's, that's sweet. It's so sweet. But there is something about the, in that delight about the, the universe conspiring to give you a little extra time. There's something about that. Like, oh, you didn't expect it. You really didn't expect it at all. And now you have like eight minutes. I can't remember what I said to watch John Morant do something. Watch, watch the best dunk in the history of the basketball or something. On your phone? On your dumb phone? Can you do that on your phone? <laughs> no. I might be on my computer. Oh, okay. That, that I might be bringing it to a meeting. Got it, yeah, got it, got so. it. <laughs> um, yeah, that really, setting aside the whole punctuality piece of it, the, the bouquet of time part of it really resonated with me. And there's nothing better than a canceled meeting. I mean, just nothing. Oh, the yeah. whole complexion of the day changes yeah. when somebody cancels on you it's awesome and i was wondering how you'd feel about that being a person who's very punctual yourself i love it i love it because yeah. i'm spending so yeah. much of my time and i'm aware this is not a great use of my time worrying about getting from one thing to the to the next and yeah. checking things off my to-do list and i've seen plenty of evidence in my and of one personal experience but also in some of the research about the connection between rushing and mood and behavior. In other words, if you're rushing all the time, you are a lot less likely to be pleasant to the people around you, never mind how you are with yourself. And of course, those two are interconnected. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Just today, I was I was going to get in the gym and work out before I came over here. But it's like the first day of school here, and I didn't realize it at all. And so the gym on campus is nuts. And I walked around and I was like, okay, that's taken, that's taken. I'm going to go set up early for this conversation. And 
it felt so nice. And even as I was going away, you know, driving over to my, my office, listening to Janet Jackson, I was like, how sweet it is to like not be rushing. Because I do like to like push it. So I have to rush. There is something about that. Like is the wrong word. I understand that that what you're saying about there may be some pathology to the rushing. Yeah. There's some part of us that wants or needs it. Yeah. But talk about a delight blocker. Oh, totally. That's totally right. Yeah. Coming up, Ross Gay talks about how writing books about delight have helped strengthen his delight radar, the difference between delight and joy, and why Ross sees joy both as a practice of survival and as an act of resistance. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with, with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, uh, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. Don't forget to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. We are offering subscriptions to the 10% Happier app at a 40% discount until the end of the month. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10%.com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash four zero for 40% off your subscription. So after having done two of these books, how's your delight radar, your delight muscle now? And did it flag between the two books? I don't think it did really. I feel like I, I do feel like writing that book, it put me in such a mind, like it just sort of like got me really alert for the things that I, that made me feel a certain kind of way, which I realized was delighted or it made me alert for like, oh, that's a thing that I love that I don't think about articulating as something that I love and all the time. I spent so much time doing that, that now it feels kind of really built into the day. And it feels, yeah, it feels really sweet to sort of just be able to drop into that as a practice or a way, sometimes more easily than other times, of course. If I'm not feeling good, it's harder to do it, which is why it's nice to be around other people who are able to do it when, when you maybe don't feel up for it. Yeah, I found a lot in my various, I don't know if you, whatever you want to call it, personal development, spiritual 
work that the carpool lane or the HOV lane effect is really powerful. It's, you know, curating the humans with whom you interact can have a big bearing on how you do your life. Yeah, for sure. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but what's your, and I know you're not dogmatic or evangelical in an obnoxious way about the life, but what's your pitch to people listening to this for why they should operationalize your insights into their life. And maybe we should also talk about the how of that as well. You're right. I'm not dogmatic about it. I wouldn't say anyone should, but I would say for me, it's been very interesting to notice not only how I feel, a kind of capaciousness that comes with feeling or with practicing, articulating what I love. And wondering about what I love, which means also wondering about why I love it, which probably means about wondering about the cosmos of what I love. And then with sharing that, sharing that wondering, but also sharing the love, there is something really interesting about how it makes you feel or how it encourages me to walk through the world. One, it makes me feel a lot less alone because, like I said earlier, I think delight is really the kind of pleasant evidence of connection so often. And that feels really important whatever it is, whatever the ways that we have to feel like we are not alone. It's interesting, too, that so many of the um, delights happen in the garden. And the garden is a place, to me, where our not being alone is so kind of on steroids. You can kind of just see, like, oh, we are really not alone. Like, everything is kind of deeply connected and threaded together. So I think that would be some of this stuff. And um, also something about delight that I've been learning is that it requires that we're just curious. We just don't know the end of things. We don't know everything. And curiosity feels so much like a part of being okay. You're just wondering what's going to happen. It feels like being okay, you know? I don't know, but I'm interested. What do you mean curiosity feels like being okay? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was talking with um, Sharon Salzberg. We were having a conversation, a Buddhist teacher, a few days ago. And I can't remember how she put it, but she said something along the lines of, or we got to this anyway, that despair is the result of knowing everything because you just know how it's going to go. And curiosity, wondering about how it's going to go, is something else. It might, you know, of course not knowing how it's going to go, as we never do, might provoke all kinds of feelings. But I do feel like curiosity, as opposed to knowledge about how things are going to go, you know, invites a kind of like, okay, well, I guess I should check. I guess I should see it. I mean, in the smallest way, and I feel like this is, we can all relate to this in our relationships. If I just know how a conversation is going to go, why am I going to have it? Mm -hmm. As opposed to being like, well, I wonder how it's going to go. I guess I better fess up to the fact that I don't actually know everything about this other person, what they think, what they feel, how they're going to respond to the thing that I'm going to ask them, et cetera, et cetera. The evidence of that, you know, we could do that every day or with someone in line at the store or whatever. We don't know what someone's going to do, just like we don't know what tomorrow is going to be. And I feel like that that's sort of what I meant. I know I was rambling. This is a safe space for rambling, uh, just to be clear. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't edit yourself. This is handwriting here, not, not word processing. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but, but just to pick up on what you're saying, because I, I hadn't thought about this before, or at least not in this way, 
you know, in Buddhism, we talk a lot about uh, the don't know mind or uh, beginner's mind. And yeah. it really is kind of the only rational stance in a non-negotiably entropic universe. And even though it's not comfortable, it's much more comfortable to grasp onto certainty, or at least on one level, it's more comfortable. But there's a subtle and unsettled pain associated with that kind of dogmatism. And if you can just relax into it, like, I don't fucking know, there is a comfort there. Yeah. And I think there's a comfort in relaxing into that with other people. Yes. And, you know, actually, I, I have the occasion, the lucky occasion to periodically get to sort of try to define joy. And I think that might be a pretty reasonable definition of it, too. The sort of gathering together in wonder, the gathering together in not knowing, which means we're, we're gathering together in sorrow, just like we're gathering together in celebration. All right, you talked about joy. That brings me to another of your books that I wanted to talk about. We established that you've written a bunch of books of poetry. You've also written these two books of delight. And you wrote a book last year, or it came out last year, called Inciting Joy. So you were just talking about definitions. I'd be curious, what's the difference between delight and joy? And then we can go from there. I think delight is occasional. And delight is the hummingbird buzzing by your ear. Whoa, that's delight. I think of joy as something that is not occasional. Joy is something that is always present and it's available to us and you kind of enter it or it finds you or something. But it doesn't feel like it requires an occasion. It feels like maybe it can. An occasion can sort of re-alert you to it. But delight feels very much like something happens and you feel delight. So delight's occasional. Joy is kind of a factory setting. <laughs> well, joy is, I mean, joy, the way I think of joy is like it's our fundamental connection, which we get tuned into on and off, it seems to me some of us more than others. And I feel like it might be an occasion that alerts us to that. I mean, I guess you can argue, one could argue that it is always going to be an occasion or it might just be like, no, this is here. Like, it's just, it's here. You know, we can just, we can decide to observe how everything is connected. Someone could argue that not everything's not connected, but I'm going to, I'm going to argue that you just witness. I'm looking, when I look out the window, I'm looking at this little forest here, which is one of the places where you can kind of like study how things are connected one of the billion places you can study that. Whereas delight, you know, this is something, again, like I didn't know I was going to say this, but maybe not only is it occasional, it's like kind of dictated by taste and stuff. Someone might just not feel delighted at all about clothes on the clothesline. It might just be like, oh, your clothes are going to smell like dog, you know? Whereas I'm saying like, oh man, it looks like a quilt. It's beautiful, <laughs> you know? But this notion of connection, this notion of this fundamental connection I do feel like that's not really something that is unique to anyone. I feel, again, I feel like there are definitely sort of practices or folks maybe who seem to be closer to it, guides or something, but I don't feel like it's special. I feel like it's always there. And yet you've said that delight is the pleasant evidence of connection. So to be a little cute here, delight and joy are connected. Totally. Totally. Yeah. A friend of mine was like, yeah, you got to like really taxonomize these things. Like you got to be able to articulate how this and that. And that's kind of as good as I can get. Delight occasional. Delight also a signal of connection. Joy sort of, as you've said, like the, how'd you put it? Like the factories. <laughs> I don't exactly know what that means, but I think it just means like, it's just how it is, you know? <laughs> and that feels, yeah, like it's just there. We can fall into it periodically. We get swallowed into it. 
So in this book, Inciting Joy, and inciting is a deliberately chosen word that I'll let you talk about, but you, you talk about joy as a practice of survival. What do you mean by that? Well, it's another one of these things like connection. Like if we practice our connection, it seems to me, I don't know how you put it, like a some generalization that's not quite accurate, but in a world, in a culture or whatever, there's a lot of disconnection. And we can just talk about one of the evidences of which is like the technology that is so sort of prominent in our lives, which is technology of, I would say, disconnection. If we practice connection, practices actually of connection, and in inciting joy, I sort of wonder about all of these different sites of the incitement of joy, these places, these practices. And I talk about pick up basketball, or I talk about school, or I talk about gardening. I sort of talk about potlucks. It seems to me that those things, not only are they the practice of the evidence of our connection, they're also a kind of, they're a kind of refutation to the illusion of our alienation or a refutation to the encouragement to believe that we're alien from each other, from the earth, from whatever, from what we might love, et cetera. Which is kind of why, just to go right to the incitement, I use that word because I feel like our witnessing one another, our witnessing our connection to one another is really a kind of, I said refutation, but I think it's more actually emphatic than that to a mode of life that would suggest that we're separate. If we feel connected fundamentally on a very basic level, we'll be more inclined to share. If we're more inclined to share in deep ways, that's a real like problem for the number of systems that we find ourselves in the midst of. On a very basic level, like if we have a tool share, it's like, okay, so we have to buy less tools. Or you can go on and on and on and build out from that. That seems to connect to your description of joy, not only as a practice of survival, but also as an act of resistance. Yeah. That quote is uh, my friend and mentor, Toy Derricott, the writer Toy Derricott's. She said that. And I think that's accurate. And it's more than that, too. I feel like it's an offense, actually. And <laughs> to come back to that paper menus thing, I have this little footnote. I have too many footnotes in Inciting Joy. And then I have maybe too many footnotes in this More Delights. But one of the footnotes talks about how the refusal sometimes of certain things can feel like an offense, like one of the offenses of joy. And I say it feels to me like the one of the offenses of joy to refuse those uh, QR codes. <laughs> and it's an offense because it's like, no, you know what? I'm going to have to get closer with my buddy here. I'm going to have to let the server know that I might need help. You might have to actually point to something. And the result is maybe that we're going to be closer. We're all going to be closer to one another. For sure, our need for one another is going to be more evident. Coming up, Ross talks about how noting what delights you can be an antidote to loneliness. And he talks about the connection between grief and joy. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website. And they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. 
What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me, and in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. I, I see in your work and in this conversation a uh, a lot of, I used the word suspicion earlier, maybe that's the right word, maybe it should be stronger or weaker, vis-a-vis the structures of the modern world, consumer culture, individualism, technology, you're a guy who, you know, has a dumb phone and only rarely uses his dryer. <laughs> so is is your view that that we should be overturning these systems? What do you want to see happen here? Rethinking them, overturning them? Maybe this is beyond your remit as a poet and a writer. I don't know, but I'm curious. It's a good question. Um, I feel like I'm curious to note and study what happens when we live, as we so often do, outside of those strictures. So I want to pay as much attention as possible to the ways that we care for one another, tend to one another, look out for one another, outside of, I don't know, I want to say outside of any compulsion to do so. I kind of want to I want to study, like I do in that Inciting Joy book, how pickup basketball is actually a game where we're just figuring out how to be together and keep a game going. We're figuring out how to make a beautiful thing together. I want to witness and pay attention to how most people who garden give away their extra shit. If you have extra zucchinis, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) If you don't give away your extra zucchinis, it's just like, if you let them rot, there's something wrong. And that's not special. That's every day. It's every day. Obviously, if I want to write about it, I'm inclined to wonder about it with other people. And then partly I'm inclined to wonder about it with other people because I'm kind of like, yo, this is a thing too. This is a thing too. Like, it doesn't really matter who you are. Like, if you fall down on the sidewalk, like, for the most part, some person next to you is going to go, oh, you okay? For the most part, that's not special. And the delights kind of alert me to this. So often, we're kind of like looking out for each other in these ways. And... We're taking care of each other in these ways, in ways that we do not often notice. You know, we do not, for whatever reason, that could be another show 
we don't necessarily attend to. And I am inclined to notice it myself. In part, I'll say, because I am someone who it's very easy for me to feel very alone in the world, cosmically alone. Fear is not unfamiliar to me, those kinds of things. And the more that I study those kinds of connections that are, again, are not special, but are wondrous, the more I feel like, oh, yeah, it's okay to be alive. It's pretty cool. Okay, now we're getting to the deep answer to my first question, which is why the light? What is driving you here? And it does seem like it's an antidote to what has sometimes been called the wound of existence. Yeah, that's pretty good. And I think if the wound of existence, there's probably many of them, but the wound of existence, just a simple fact that our bodies change over time and what we love will go away and this thing will change and go away and we will feel pain and everyone we love will feel pain and, and die. That actually feels like a very orienting and potentially gathering up sort of notion too. Obviously, it can be the kind of thing that makes us want to like be afraid of each other. But it might also be the kind of thing that makes us want to lean toward each other and be like, oh, the wound of existence for you too, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. And I do feel like this delight practice, which again, to say it, if delight is studying a version of connection, it is trying to figure out how we are not alone. Mm -hmm. So to get back to what we were talking about before of like your sometimes subtle, sometimes unsubtle and very direct critiques of many of the structures in which we live, again, capitalism, consumerism, individualism, tech-driven isolation. It's not like you've got some six-point plan for building a new world. It's more like you are encouraging us all to a gentle version of red-pilling, to drop out of the matrix and see that other things are true simultaneously. Yeah, probably. There is a quote where you pretty much say that, <laughs> this is from inciting joy and you're talking about giving away fruit from the community orchard that you were part of establishing and you use i want to i'm going to read a quote from you i want to give a heads up to the listener that use a big fancy word here that i had to go look up the word is rhizomatic r-h-i-z-o-m-a-t-i-c <laughs> which i think is like some sort of botanical horticultural agricultural word around sort of being connected like through the root structure yes. or something like that yes that's right that's right. like raspberries like how roots are connected on the ground so here's the quote, despite every single lie to the contrary, despite every single action born of that lie, we are in the midst of rhizomatic care that extends in every direction, spatially, temporally, spiritually, you name it. It's certainly not the only thing we're in the midst of, but it's the truest thing by far. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm singing about. I think that's sort of, you pointed out, well, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> it's a little, you know, I'm so sort of shy about being like, yeah, I want people to do this, but there is a thing and I'm like, this feels really important to think about. I mean, there's a million great things to think about, but this feels like a really important one. I mean, this may be a flaw of mine that derives out of the sort of utilitarian, pragmatic aspects of me being a aging white man in a late stage capitalistic <laughs> context or whatever. <laughs> but I... I am all for poetry and beautiful sentiments, but I always want to connect it to some shit you can actually do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I get it, too. 
Like I spent a lot of years as a basketball coach. And when people are just like jacking up threes without shooting their little five footers, I'm like, fuck are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> bring it in. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And my, I feel like my, probably my inclination is to share it and then see what happens. If it moves people, how it moves people. Yeah, because you're not a self-help writer. You're a poet and a, an essayist. And it's, it's a little bit like um, when people go to pop stars or rock musicians and say, tell us what your lyrics mean. And the vocalist will say, well, or the lyricist will say, you know, I, I kind of want to leave that up to interpretation. I don't want to be too mm -hmm. explicit about it. It kind of breaks the magic. Yeah, totally. And I think there's also this thing of like, like I really appreciate a system too. Like I said, I've been a coach. There's plenty of systems that I really appreciate. That's actually not my curiosity. My curiosity is the curiosity itself. I'm sort of learning and becoming more aware of what certain kinds of thinking or certain kinds of writing slash thinking seem to offer to me. And I'm learning also from folks who tell me what the work has meant to them, what it means to them. But I feel like there's something as a writer, but also maybe in an ethical way, too, that I'm, I'm less inclined to be like, and this is what you do. In part, I wonder if that implies a kind of end of the curiosity. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like a system implies I know how it is. I don't have any illusion that I know how it is, you know? I kind of like wonder about it with me. Like, I don't know what it is with you. I don't know what it is with my mother. I don't know what it is with X, Y, and Z. But I also, for my own sort of ongoing inquiry, I don't want there to be an end to the inquiry. And sometimes, and I know this isn't at all necessarily the case, but sometimes it feels like there's an inclination to systematize a thing, to know it inside and out, and to be done with it. And I think there's something about that that I, that I resist. I, I get it. That, I, that makes complete yeah. sense to me. And I think of the systematizing or operationalizing of insights to be more about not forgetting because it's so easy yeah. to hear, oh yeah, the light's good for you. Right. And then just start rushing again and never be delighted. Totally. Yeah. I often think about the question of it. And my question is like, what happens to us when we notice what we love and when we, when we notice, wonder about, articulate and share what we love? I'm, that's my question. I'm just very curious about that. And that feels like a pretty rich, pretty full question itself. It can take a lot of shapes. Let me ask you just a few more questions before I let you go. Uh, back on the subject of joy within the context of Inciting Joy, book that came out last year, uh, you talk a lot about the connection between grief and joy, which is not, I would imagine, an obvious connection to many of us. So can you unpack that a little bit? I feel like I learned from this beautiful essay by Zadie Smith called Joy. You know, the idea that joy, and again, joy is being different than like gladness or happiness, all of which are like great. But joy, one of the ways that I think of it is something that isn't like separate from or an alternative to sorrow, but it's something that actually emerges from sorrow. Like it doesn't actually exist absent sorrow. One of the expressions of joy is the ways that we help each other, we carry each other through our sorrows. And that's how I think of it. So, and again, it's a kind of like a, a ground, that primal wound of like, however you want to say it, that things change is a way to sort of think about it or that everything we love is going to be gone or whatever. To attend to that by being like, for you too, 
it seems to me that joy is as likely to make you weep as it is to make you like dance. Mm -hmm. Neither of which are more or less the evidence of joy, but it does feel like joy comes from both or joy might make you want to do both. There's this American Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, who's been on this show before, and I'm probably going to mangle this, but I remember reading, she talked, if memory serves, about after 9-11, which I'm aware many listeners or young enough won't remember what it was like immediately after 9-11. But after 9-11, there was a kind of like national, for lack of a less twee word, tenderness. Mm -hmm. You know, everything had been totally shaken up. The snow globe had been properly shaken. And mm -hmm. we were in touch with impermanence, groundlessness, some fundamental facts that are easy to overlook mm -hmm. in a hurtling head forward making the next purchase type of culture. And yeah. I connect that to what you're saying, which is that even when quote unquote bad shit happens, you know, somebody dies, you lose a job, you get divorced, there's a natural disaster. There is a joy in the fact that inherent in that, implicit in that, non-negotiably part of that is a connection to other people because this is the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. And my sense is that the more we practice being aware of that, the more inclined we are to sort of care for one another when the horror happens, as it will. I would agree. Like I said, just have a few more questions. This one may seem like a non sequitur given what we've just discussed, but uh, it connects back to things we discussed a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking in preparing for this that I've had a few conversations on this show lately where people are raising questions about the structure of our society, particularly capitalism and consumerism and individualism, and noticing that many of the people making the most pointed critiques that resonate the most with me tend to be black Americans. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of people like Mia Birdsong, Sabine Selassie, you, where there's an emphasis on not only a, a critique, but also a positive case for connection and community. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's something about the Black American experience that might put somebody in that state of mind. I can talk about my own experience. And like, you know, I was just visiting with my Aunt Butter, who's 97 years old. Every time I say how old she is, I think I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, as we were talking, she just said this thing about some family member went to college. She's in Youngstown, Ohio. Some family member moved in the 60s or something to some place in Illinois or something, I don't know, nearby-ish. But she said, like, it was so important to let them know that they had a place to go. And as a kind of ethic, you can imagine, I can imagine in my own family that there's a kind of ethic of uh, care or noticing who's cared for you, noticing you're not alone or not letting people feel like they're alone that feels... Like that, it makes sense to me that my Aunt Butter might have that, a 97-year-old Black woman might have that in a way that is more profound, frankly, and that sometimes I have to be taught that. I feel like she's a very good uh, guide for me to be like, remember, you, you come from people. And I feel like in a certain kind of like broad American ethos, you know, the self-made person, that whole story is so much about pretending you don't come from people that you don't come from a place, that you weren't loved. Whoever you were didn't have like 
many people that if you spend a little bit of time, you could be like, oh yeah, that person, they didn't just help me, they kind of saved my life. So yeah, I might, I might wager that as a little bit of a, in my own experience anyway, that a lot of my folks have had to be acutely practicing belonging to one another and have probably not been well served actually by the, the stories to the contrary, the whole stories of like, that self-made bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suspect that nearly every time you do an interview, the interviewer thinks they're the first person to make the joke about how it was a delight and a joy <laughs> to talk to you. Just like I'm uh, often confronted with people feeling very clever when they say I'm 10% happier, 10% after, happier. after having talked to you, <laughs> which I, I don't hold against them. I get it. Uh, it's affectionate. Um, and yet it gets a little old if you've heard the joke a thousand times. But nonetheless, <laughs> it has been delightful to talk to you. Um, I do want to ask you my traditional two closing questions. One is, is there something that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Is there a place you wanted to go I didn't take us slash you? No. No. Then the final question is, would you mind shamelessly plugging your new book and anything else you want people to know about? Oh, sure. Yeah, this new book, it's called The Book of More Delights. And Algonquin Press is doing it. Find people there. They've been very lovingly taking care of this book. Yeah, that's the plug. But I also want to say how, how fun this conversation has been. You've asked questions that have made me reconsider some of my understandings of myself, you know? And that's, to me, that's sort of the pleasure of the, the pleasure of conversations. And it's kind of why I could never be like, and this is what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Well, that's very meaningful to me. So thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Ross. Great to have him on the show. Go check out his work. Thanks, of course, to you for listening. And uh, after thanking you, I'm going to ask you for a solid. If you want to help me out, you can uh, give us a rating or a review over on whatever podcast player you use. Also, check out the new stuff on uh, Instagram and TikTok. Been trying out little almost daily videos about how to do life better. I could use the followers and the feedback. And finally, thank you most of all to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio and Nick Thorburn from the awesome band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. This one is really good. It's with the comedian Aparna Nancharla. Uh, who's written a whole book about imposter syndrome, and I co-interview Aparna with Dr. Bianca Harris, my wife. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. 
because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.